Welcome to Courageous Conversations with your host, Richard Dolan, a world-renowned speaker, mentor, and coach to many celebrity icons and global thought leaders. Listen as they share their stories and insights about what it takes to lead a courageous life, from overcoming adversity to living with purpose and meaning. Each guest brings a unique perspective that will leave you feeling empowered and motivated to make positive changes in your own life starting today. Good morning, good evening, everybody. It's Richard Dolan here for a courageous conversation. I'm delighted to have people from all around the world here listening in, dialing in. We have a legendary conversation today with an incredible human being named David Falk. I know that when we get David going, he's going to say, gosh, I want to. I want to go back. He loves that part. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll hear more from him shortly. But that being said, I want to just welcome each and every one of you here. As you all know, Courageous Conversation started as a stand for people who were dealing with this crisis thing, this COVID thing, this corona thing. And we all thought that by connecting through conversation with people that inspired us would be a real great way to kind of come at the end of the week, raise a glass and toast yourselves to humanity to say, hey, you did it. You made it. You're here. Now for today, I felt it was really important to maybe dig deep and find on YouTube something that would capture the essence, the magic, the power of who David Falk is. And I mean, I got to tell you something, folks. I got to tell you something. For those who are watching the recording, 650,000 listeners post our live recording. I mean, I, you got to know something. It's hard to find one thing you want to show people about David Falk. And you want to know why? Because if you remember the movie, The Wizard of Oz, the whole movie was predicated on the fact that you had these characters that were seeking and looking for the thought leadership of the Wizard of Oz. And at the very end, and I know I'm going to ruin it for all of you, is that behind the curtain was this man, and I'm not suggesting that David is small nor, nor short, but there was a man that was pulling the levers and pushing the buttons who indeed was the Wizard of Oz. Now that's who David Falk is. A man who's behind the curtains, pushing the buttons, having pulled the levers in some of sport's most memorable, epic, legendary moments that the history books will always, in fact, repeat, record, and revere. So with that being said, I'm going to go straight into my YouTube here because I want to show you one little introduction, which is so important to me to show you because I think it really sets up the tone for who David is. Take a look. David Fuck taught me the evolution of business, how to utilize uh, my likeness, you know, my personality, my basketball talent, and channel that into the business aspect of uh, Michael Jordan as a person. Everyone who's been represented by David turns out winning. He really takes good care of, of his people. And uh, we've become great, great friends. And, you know, my life has gotten a lot better as a result of my association with David. I think the only person I've ever met who's more competitive than David Falk is Michael Jordan. I think what's make, made him successful is his tenacity. Uh, you know, he, he, he never stops. The more I was around him, even though I couldn't get in a word because he talked so damn much, uh, I knew that I liked this guy. You know, I, I really liked him. And, and I thought he really worked hard at what he did. And that was very important to me. If David Falk had been my agent, I'd probably be the happiest man in the world today because he knew how to strike a deal with other owners. David Falk's reputation, I think he, the, the, his reputation towards the players, I mean, uh, from the players was great. The management side, they thought it was cutthroat. You know, he's hard-nosed, you know, a hard negotiator. So he, he was always in the corner for the players. I would say that the words I would use to characterize my relationship with David while I was commissioner was contentious friends. Or uh, we were f friendly and contentious at the same time. Now, let's give him a real warm welcome, our very good friend, the one and the only Mr. David Falk. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Boy, I got to tell you, it's really hard to narrow it down because there's so much that can be said about you, who you are, the difference you've made, the difference you continue to make. I mean, I can introduce you as uh, an incredible son to Pearl, an incredible father to a beautiful family. I mean, I can go on to talk about who you are to Rhonda, who you are to players, who you've been to the league, who you are across many sports, the philanthropist you are, the educator you've been, I mean, the mentor, the mentee, uh, but best of all of them, my friend, 
Uh, I mean, gosh, David, it's such an honor to be talking to you today. So first and foremost, how are you? I'm doing great. You know, obviously we're going to talk about the pandemic a little bit today. And uh, I had a long conversation this afternoon I'd like to share with you and your listeners saying that, you know, while this is not what I would have wished for, and there are a lot of restrictions in our lifestyles, you know, overall, I think that we're very blessed. We've been tested. I know you're a pioneer in testing of COVID. And, you know, I think that we're blessed for what we have. Uh, we could be in a one-bedroom apartment with four kids, you know, worried every day, are they going to be healthy? And so I think a lot of the approach to COVID has got to be psychological as opposed to simply scientific. It's how you look at your situation. And I think most people that I know overall are, you know, are very, very fortunate. Well, you know, indeed you are and indeed we are. So let's get started with this conversation. Uh, God bless the family. I, I know that you've been very dedicated and committed to making sure that everyone is safe and sound. And that's it just says the kind of dad you are. So folks, here's the thing about you. Let me, let me start from the beginning. When I had the chance of meeting you, David, I'm sure that uh, to rewind the history tapes for people that know who I am and, and, and know who you are, but want to know, how do we come to meet? I have a great story because it's not every day you get to work with someone like a Jawan Howard, who, for those who don't know, is a two-time NBA world champion. I mean, one of the longest standing, most uh, legendary players in the world of the NBA. It was actually David Falk who negotiated the very first $100 million contract in the NBA that took effect. And after working with Jawan, when I asked him now what, we both kind of came up with the idea of, hey, why don't we come up with a plan to buy a piece of the Miami Heat to become equitable stakeholders? And I mean, Magic Johnson just negotiated this incredible deal to be a part owner in the Dodgers. Why don't we do that? He goes, well, before I do anything, you got to talk to David Falk. I said, I said okay. And, and David and I spoke every day where he uh, talked sensible, he uh, talked simple, uh, but every time I called him, he said no to me. And I kept coming back and kept coming back. And it was during that time I really came to learn, realize, and appreciate everything that this man has been for not just Juwan, but for all the players. So David, take us back. What made you want to become a, an actual agent, a lawyer, a negotiator, the, the argumenter that I know you've been touted to be? <laughs> where did that start for you? Well, since you have an international audience, my parents both first-generation Americans. My grandparents emigrated from Poland, all four of them. Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side uh, was a scholar. And uh, all of his children uh, went to college. My mom went to college at the top, and very few of them went. She graduated at 19. And she was my life's mentor. She really stressed education. And from an early age, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I never wanted to be a fireman or an Indian chief or an astronaut. I always wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and I, I began to love sports probably about 12 or 13 years old. And I had this sort of romantic notion in high school, like, wouldn't it be cool if you could combine a career in law and a career in sports? Now, that time, the sports agenting industry basically didn't even exist. It really started in the late 60s. A gentleman named Mark McCormick, who was a pioneer, started the business. And, um, my very first day at college at Syracuse University, I met the two-star basketball players on my dorm floor, became great friends to this day. And I thought, wow, how cool is this when I, we all become seniors, I'm going to represent these guys. And lo and behold, one of the two was the sixth league scorer in the country, got drafted, and we talked about it. We both knew that I had no clue what to do. So I went off to law school to get some training, and in law school, I started networking, met a lot of different people through friends and family. And because the business was so small, they all said, God, we love your passion, but we're not hiring anyone. And we're certainly not hiring with your academic qualifications. Meet this guy. And so I met all these different people. And finally, I was in law school in Washington, D.C. They said, you should meet this gentleman, Donald Dell, who's the Davis Cup captain. And that's how I got my start, working for Donald for free because he wouldn't hire me. And I opted to work for free. So first and foremost, Pearl, your mom, I mean, she was a mentor. She spoke eight languages. Uh, she was an interpreter back in, in, in the war days. I mean, knowing who she was definitely sounds like being a mentor was number one. First and foremost, everyone needs a mentor. Number two, it sounded like you weren't afraid to start with nothing. So even though you knew nothing, you were willing to actually enter conversations knowing that you didn't know much. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. But willing to work for free to learn the craft, let's pick up from there. Well, where did that commitment to do that come from? Honestly, it was a spur-of-the-moment decision. I called Donald for months to try to get an interview. 
everyone else was was very uh, very generous with their time. Uh, didn't take long. I met Larry Fleischer, father of the NBA Players Union. I met Bob Wolf, who represented Larry Bird and Doug Flutie. Met a lot of the really well-known people. Donald was impossible to get through, and he gave every excuse that an executive gives for they don't want to take a phone call. He's in a meeting. He's at lunch. He's out of town. He's in the bathroom. You know, whatever. And father, one day, I just, I, 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 I had it. I, I thought this was so rude, and I. I rarely went to the library in Los Angeles. I went to the law library back in the days when there were pay phones. This is pre-cell phones. And I bought a bunch of quarters. I called him every 10 minutes. And when he ran out of excuses, he gave me an interview. Kept me waiting three hours to have the interview. And I was doing it on my lunch break from a job at a law firm. And uh, we got done with the interview. So look, you know, really appreciate your interest, but we're not hired right now. And I was crushed. And I said, well, I'll work for free. And I guess he thought that was a pretty good offer. He couldn't turn it down. So I worked for free the entire summer at night. I worked during the day for a very large law firm called Sidley and Austin uh, in Washington from like, you know, nine to six. And then I walked across the street, worked for Dahl from like 6.30 to 11. Uh, and at the end of my, the end of the summer, he gave me a part-time job clerking while I was a third-year law student. And they allowed you to work 20 hours a week and be a full-time student. I probably averaged 80 hours a week. I basically didn't go to school. I did what it took, take my exams. And I waited all year long, which is all year long to get a job. And finally, a week after graduation, I think my friends from law school would have burned his belly down if they didn't hire me because they know how badly I wanted this. He sat me down for lunch at four o'clock, four o'clock. Now for me, that's almost dinner. And he said, look, he worked really hard. Like to make an offer and start out at thirteen thousand dollars a year, which was less than any secretary in the office. I said, Don, you know, I'm a lawyer. Starting lawyers, even in the government, make a eighteen to twenty. And he said, Really? How much? I said, Yeah. I said, Well, that's great, but Adele Crago, starting the stores, is the only one started at thirteen. And I, I got to say, over seventeen years, while I had a wonderful experience at ProServe, and it got me on my way in my career. I never made. Never made much money, but I had un- incredible job satisfaction doing something I loved. I want to catch it because I want everyone to write this down or make a mental note of this. David, I mean, even your wife, Rhonda, uh, noticed in you, you had ambition. And it's only until you get to know who you are and what you've done and the lengths you went through just to be driven and remain committed to an opportunity. Where did that come from? Because there seems to be a hunger that you had to be somewhere you really want to be and you wouldn't take no for an answer. And I know that to be true because it's consistent with the reputation you've earned in the league for being the most powerful person in the NBA amongst many leagues, second to the commissioners, because you simply get it done. Where did that come from? I think mostly it came from my mom, probably came from my grandfather, who I really didn't know very well. He died when I was eight years old, but he came to America with nothing. He was, he was paid to be a scholar in Poland. He came, uh, he was Jewish. He didn't believe in working on Saturdays. And he ended up opening up a store that had to be open on Saturdays if you wanted to make money. And I think nothing that his children did was good enough. Not in a bad way, in a loving way, but he had very, very high standards. My mom got the gene. I definitely have the gene. And my older daughter, Dana, I said, I'm sorry, she had any parents always argue, you know, Who's got the good hair? Who's got the nice eyes? Who's athletic? I'm sorry, you got the gene, and I know that I can be very demanding. It's not something that's intentional. It's just it's genetic, and I, I think the good part of that is that I'm my own worst critic. You know, I'm grateful for kind words people say, but if I don't satisfy myself, it really doesn't do very much for me. And so, I have very, very high standards for myself, and people who don't know me in the world of sports think that I'm either arrogant or I'm greedy or, you know, what, uh, you know, whatever. And I said, no, you, you don't understand. This is just me trying to please my mom. It's just something inside of me. I know that she's going to say, you could have done better. No matter what you do, she's an extremely loving person, but incredibly demanding. And I think that that shaped me for the kind of person that I am. You know, David, I, and I get to say this and I don't get to say this often to a lot of people because I've come to know who you are. We talk often, we're doing other things together, which I'm, I mean, 
and the witness of the hundreds of thousands that will watch this recording, I want you to know I'm grateful. I'm, I'm humble. I'm lit up, scared to death, unhappily so, by the way. But I get your drive because I've always wanted to work with you. But here's just to get back to the point, it, it would almost seem like I can see how being the hard negotiator and always wanting to win, it sounds like for everybody, they've got to get grounded with what drives you. You know, who is it you want to make happy? Who is it you want to make proud? So when I look at David Falk and all of you look at your each other, at yourselves, how do you live? How do you lead? And what will you leave? Because the way you lived and how you've led, David, is equal to what you're leaving. And we'll get to your philanthropy and, and your trusts and, and the wonderful work that you're doing in the world of education, but it's consistent. Like who you were in the 80s and who you are right now in 2020 is actually quite a mirror of each other. Wouldn't you agree? I think I've matured. I think as you get older and your experience to shape you, I would say in a very introspective way, power anybody in a negotiation. I wanted to be like a trial. I wanted to present my evidence and persuade them that what I was asking for was the correct, correct amount. Having majored in college and economics, I early on, probably in the early 80s, long before people heard the word analytics, I developed my own crude analytics. I developed what I would call leading economic indicators in the business of basketball to try to explain to the owners why I thought my players were worth what they were worth. So as an example, in 1985, I saw it on my own, my first big player, which was Patrick Ewing. And at the time, the highest rookie ever had made $1.2 million a year. And the highest veteran in the history of the league made two million. And we ended up selling Patrick for $3.2 million a year, 10 years, 55%. And people asked, how could that happen? I said, it's very simple. Prior to 1985, the two worst teams in the league would flip a coin to see who could draft the best player. You had a 50-50 chance, if you were a bad team, of getting a Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing. But in 1985, David Stern was concerned that the teams would start losing intentionally to get into the coin flip. So we created a lottery system where the seven teams back then, now there's 14, that didn't make the playoffs had a blind lottery. And the Knicks won the first lottery. Now, you don't have to do complicated math. If the odds go from 50-50 to having the number one pick to one in seven, you just made an asset that's very valuable, more scarce, and the value goes up. And so I basically told the Knicks, there are no comps throw everything else off is a very unique situation. It's an aberration and we need to approach it in an aberrational way. And took a while, but I, I was dealing with a very, very smart guy on the Nick level uh, who ended up running baseball advanced media and he got it and it took all summer, but so it wasn't a question of being tough or intimidating. It was more like being a good trial lawyer and, and be able to see the case and present it in a cogent way. And as I got older and developed my own reputation, I think the people I dealt with realized I wasn't trying to intimidate them. I wasn't trying to beat them. The idea that negotiations, I teach negotiations like you teach real estate investing. And I teach my students, negotiations is not a zero sum game. One side doesn't win and one side doesn't lose. Both sides have to win. If you want to make a deal, it's going to last. And in an industry like sports, which is very small, you deal with the same people over and over again. If you win too much or you overdo it when you have the edge, one day you're not going to have the edge and they're going to scalp you. You could tell not much left here to scalp. So you try to moderate. As you get older, you try to moderate position. You want to be assertive. And so I believe in any industry that there's a zone of fairness for making a deal. And my job is to be at the top end of the zone, and the owner's job is to be at the bottom end of the zone. And but for an aberrational situation like Patrick, if you get out of the zone, you're going to create problems down the road. And so I came to believe that the most important aspect of what I did was to learn how to make a deal and generate goodwill with the people, because you're going to deal with them again. And you want them to know that you're trying to be, do a good job to your client. You try to be aggressive, but you're trying to be fair. You know, that brings up another really great point because, you know, understand that you were the pioneer behind creating your leading economic indicators. And today we've got Google and analytics and other types of digital intelligence that's tracking things and whatnot. 
you you really, in fact, determined, you were the first to lead the charge in determining the value of a player against the slot system, right? So if someone got drafted the fifth, they would imply that the person who got drafted sixth would actually make less than the one who got drafted fifth. And so as you were creating your own science, if it were, to significance, that really gave rise to the two things that I've heard from friends of mine, clients of yours in the business that said, when David sold his service, he sold his competence and track record. Nothing else really mattered. And trust came. How much of that statement would you agree with? 100%. And I'll tell you why. In our industry, you're dealing with really young people, 19, 20, 21 years old, that are bright but have no experience in business. And they've been recruited their whole lives because they're very talented to go to the right junior high, the right high school, the right college. And everyone's telling them how great they are. Then you go pro, and the owner's not going to tell you how great you are. He's got 14 other great athletes just like you. And so you have to be straight. And so I used to tell them, I'm not here to massage your ego. I'm here to massage your wallet and get over yourself. You know, you're not the first great player I've had. You're not going to be the last. And so you, you try to say to I try to compare myself. And I don't want to say this in an egotistical way. I told him the following when I met. I made someone like Juwan, who's a very bright guy. I would ask him the following question. If tomorrow morning you bought a lottery ticket for the Michigan lottery and you found out you won, you won $500 million, who would you want to manage the money? And a lot of us say, well, I have a friend next door or cousin. I said, no, no, that's the wrong answer. You want Warren Buffett to manage your money because he's the best investor in the history of the United States. Well, then Arbor Gazette. He's not going to read the Ann Arbor Gazette and call up Juwan and say, hey, I heard you just made $500 million. I'd like to make a presentation to manage your money. Let's pocket change for Warren Buffett. And so I said, smart players, instead of the agents recruiting the players, if you're really smart, you'd recruit the agent if you thought that there was a Warren Buffett out there. And we had a Warren Buffett track record. Our record, objectively, we outperformed the competition by about 20%. And so when I met Juwan, I never told you this, he literally had the printouts of all the players drafted where he thought he'd get drafted. And he asked, like, why this guy's contract so much? Why did you get more for this guy? He was really prepared. And I, that really registered with me. He really made a very strong impression. And so I think at the end of the day, you could be very persuasive and con someone into hiring you. I could have conned my college friends into letting me represent him, but I would have done a disastrous job because I wasn't ready. And so I believe you are selling the track record for the very same way that the player is being drafted by the pros based on his track record in college. That they understand, but when it comes to translating that on the business side, sometimes it gets a little bit lost in translation. No, absolutely. And that gives rise to just how your journey led you to go out on your own when you launched Fame. You know, your firm, I mean, you, you were born out of a space and actually the, the rumor is, or the talk was, that the movie Jerry Maguire, in some ways, shape and form, emulated a little bit of your own history, where you left a firm, and in hit that case, he brought only one client with him. But in your case, you brought all the clients. So, so, I tell you, made that leap of faith. So this is how really crazy for someone who considers himself an actor. I never wanted to go on my own. You know, I, I was doing my dream job, and in a very short period of time, from 1982 to 1986, in that four-year period, I signed Michael Jordan. James Worthy, Patrick Ewing, Chris Dahlman, who's the fifth all-time sacker in NFL, James Lofton, who retires the all-time receiver, John Thompson, and Johnny Dawkins, the National Player of the Year. If that had been my entire career, I would have been in the Hall of Fame. And so while I got many, many job offers to leave and run teams or be a general manager, both of us have, God, you have to be really stupid. You have this group of guys that are really loyal to you that are at the very top of their profession, how could you leave off? And so as I got these offers, my boss who became my partner and later became my employee. We went, we flipped roles. He would ask me, are you gonna leave? And I said, Donald, I'm never gonna leave with two caveats. One, if I ever find out that there's anyone in the company other than you making more money than I am, I'm gone. You know, I'll bring in the most business. And two, if I ever feel that the only way you will pay me fairly is for me to threaten to quit. I don't want to have that kind of relationship. If you don't realize what my value is, I'm going to go. And one day he failed both tennis and I had a non-compete. I couldn't stay in the industry. I was nervous as hell. I just resigned. 
I just couldn't work another day there. And I ended up buying the business. I did what was then called an LBO, leverage buyout. And, uh, and I took the whole thing lock, stock, and barrel. So basically negotiated the out of the deal by not doing what he should have done to protect a valuable asset. Uh, so David, again, thank you so much for being here. And by the way, are you open to getting some questions from around the world? Of course, love to do that. And fantastic. So we've got some- I don't think they're going to hit the wall. They're not going to want to hear, you know, they want, they're going to want to ask their own question. I love it. I love it. All right. But let me get to the next point, which is this. What I find fascinating, David, one of the things I learned from Juwan, uh, who looks up to you, uh, who always has said to me, as a world champion, now head coach at the uh, NCAA level there in Michigan. What an incredible legacy story that's becoming right now with Jace over there, but more than another time, because that's a, that's a whole story in itself. Tremendous story. Immense story. Is that David always assigned a value. And when it came to selling your business, you always assigned it a value. And when you sold your company, it wasn't like the business that you were in, the services business was known to be sold quite often and at a multiple that was understood and calculable. You declared a value and you sold your business for $200 million. Would it be fair to say that you didn't ever have a self-worth issue and, and declaring that kind of value wasn't difficult or was it? Tell us about what thinking went behind that. That's a great question and a great story. So it never occurred to me that you could sell a personal service business. We, I was only on my own maybe five years and we started getting, we got a call from American Express. We got a call from one of the Waltmayers that owned Walmart that loves sports and said, we'd like to buy your business. And having worked for a large company, the second largest company in the world for 17 years, ProServe, I was the vice chairman. I sort of loved coming in in the morning and seeing my name on the door. A company was called Fame, was an acronym for Falk Associates Management Enterprise. So I really didn't want to sell, but then we got a really serious offer from a friend of mine named Bob Mikowski, who had run in the president of Malsa Square Garden. And we went out and hired Goldman Sachs to be our our banker. And Goldman assigned a young guy to be our banker. And he studied all our contracts. He said, you know, the company's worth $75 million. And I said, great. I would never sell a company for $75 million. And my partner asked me, like, why not? Which you think that's a lot of money? I said, well, because saying that five years ago, I was making $220,000 a year. Yeah, it's an ungodly amount of money. But having, I don't want to work for someone again. I had a sort of an abusive relationship with my partner. I like being on my own, control of my own destiny. And so I really didn't want to sell. And I was making what I thought was, you know, good money. And so I arbitrarily decided that if I couldn't get $100 million, I wouldn't sell the company. So one day, the chairman of the company that bought us, his name was Bob Sullivan. The company was called SFX. He called me up to New York and said, look, I'm dying to buy your business. And we don't seem to be making progress. What do you think the business is worth? What do your people think the business is worth? I said, well, Goldman tells me the business is worth something between 75 and 80. He said, well, my people are bare stones and they're telling me this is worth 75. B. Why can't we make a deal? And I said, because I really don't want to sell it at all. Um, and I just arbitrarily decided that for the aggravation level of working for someone again, I have to get a hundred million. I'll just keep it. And if you don't think it's worth a hundred, you won't offend me in the least because Goldman doesn't think it's worth a hundred either, but I'm not going to sell it. And if you come back to me next summer, sort of like a guy who's single for a long time, the longer you're single, the harder it is to get married. Next year, my number will probably be 200. And so we made a deal in 10 minutes. So, okay. He, he basically tried to give us a hundred, but he gave us so much stock that the stock read through the roof and let playing this 200. And literally two years into the, I'll tell you the epilogue to the story is better than the first part. Two years into the deal, I was in what was called the office of the chairman. So it was the chairman of the company, the president, myself, and while ago, Sullivan sells his company, which is called SFX, to the largest radio station company in America, Clear Channel, for $4.5 billion. And I go up to New York. We have a board meeting. We approve the merger. And I walk out of the room, I'm 40, 50 years old, made a lot of money. I don't have a job. They've just sold the company out from under me. And I'm trying to feel, what the hell are you going to do now? And I get a call on my cell phone from the chairman of Clear Channel, who's a legend in the broadcast business named Larry Bays. 
And he goes, Mr. Falk, uh, my name is Larry Mays, and the chairman of Clojure. I'd be like, you know, I don't be like Warren Buffett calling you and saying, hey, my name is Warren Buffett. I've been an investor. Like everyone knows who Warren Buffett is. So Mr. Mays, I'm, I'm very sure who you are. Like, what can I do for you? He said, well, I don't know if you've heard, but I've just bought your company, SFX, and I want to know where you're going to stay. And I said, you know, gosh, you know, I just learned about this five minutes ago and my head is spinning. You know, I'm trying to digest what this means to me. I'll let you know in about six months. And he goes, no, no, David, you don't understand. I did want to buy the business, but your chairman, Bob Sullivan, literally hypnotized my two sons into buying this business. I think it's a complete boondoggle, but I'm going to stand by my sons. And the only thing that interests me in the entire company you have, I'm a big sports fan. I have familiar your career. Um, and, um, you know, if you don't stay, you know, I'm not going to buy the business. I said, Mr. Bates, with all due respect, you know, I'm not a megalomaniac. Sports is 8% of SFLs. It'd be less than 1% of Clearchild. It can't possibly matter to you whether I stay or not. He said, no, no, it's just, I'm telling you, it's a deal breaker for me. And so I said, okay, you know, talk about pressure. Uh, you stay holding up a $4.5 billion merger, you know, and so I said, if it's that important, I'm flattered. I'll give it a year. And at the end of the year, I left. I just couldn't stand. So what happened was our business, when we sold it, we were like Neiman Marcus. We were Ferrari. We were small with very, very high-end clients. We weren't looking for value. We weren't trying to be Walmart. We were trying to be Neiman. Larry's son comes in to see me right after he buys the bezels. And he says to me, David, you know, we're one of the top New York Stock Exchange companies in America. We're going to call on your division to produce 15% year-on-year, year-over-year growth. I said, look, with all due respect, you must not know anything about sports. That's impossible. I can't do well. And he said, why not? I said, because the collective bargaining basketball only allows the player salaries to go up by 10.5%. So there's no way I can give you that kind of growth. And he said, look, I thought you were a smart guy. That's very simple. Just sign more clients. And I said, look, you don't understand. I'm not Walmart. We're Neiman Marcus. We got to where we are by being very selective and having guys like Michael know he's not one of 900 clients. He's one of a few. And our philosophies just didn't jive. And so I wasn't angry, but it just didn't work. And it didn't allow me to be who I feel I am. I think I'm creative. I think I'm an entrepreneur. And I don't want to be stuck in a, on a very tight wall where I can't do what, what made the business worth buying in the first place. They try to take that away. And so I, I was on. But let's let's get in there because let's open this up. I mean, a lot of people here are associated with big brands. There's people that are associated with uh, you know the Tenex brand or Grand Cardone brand or or other kinds of brands, um, and even their businesses and, and jobs. How big of a deal do you find it was for you when you sold your company to be associated with super brands like Patrick Ewing, like Michael Jordan, like those that you've cited already? How big of a deal was it? Was it was it everything for you? Well, I think it was. It I think it put me in a position to sell a company. We were the best known, most successful agency in basketball ever, maybe in sports, but certainly in basketball. I mean, to, to put it in perspective, when I say it's not the sound braggadocious, but I had 24 employees and 40 clients, and we sold the business for $200 million. I bought my biggest competitor, who was a very good friend, who had 240 clients, six times more than I did, and I paid $30 million for him because he didn't have the EBITDA. You know, and so we ran the business very well. We didn't cut the fees for the players. We didn't cut corners. We ran it like a business. And so I think that our, the prestige of the superstars we represented put us on the map, but we managed the business very well, which gave us the numbers that appealed to the, to the Golden Saxes and the Bear Stearns. And then speaking of numbers, you know, for those who are tuning in, you know, David Falk is someone that, uh, I mean, you, you've got to understand, he's not just an agent. He was the one that rewrote, that this is a true tale. He rewrote the NBA contract in such a way that it actually turned out to become the collective bargaining agreement that's actually been in service for now 25 years later. I mean, I mean, David, at the end of the day, there's, there's so many really cool little things about you and your stats that if there was a scoreboard, it would say, that's David Falk, that's David Falk, that's David Falk. Um, 
you know, t- tell me t- today, given the kind of business you're at, at 70 years of age and what you're up to, um, what kind of work do you do now with the brands, with the players that you once represented today? What's, what's life look like for David Falk and the celebrities you managed? In 1986, the union passed a rule that prohibited agents from representing both players and coaches or players and owners. And so as a lot of my clients retired and got into coaching, Juwan, Tommy Amaker, Johnny Dawkins, Patrick Ewing, John Paxson, Danny Farkin, name comes in, I wasn't able to represent them anymore legally. Now, a lot of the agents cheat on the rule, but I don't. And, and so I had to hire another agent for them, which is like, like putting the child up for adoption almost. It was very hard for me. Um, uh, and so I maintain very strong social relationships with these guys. I can't represent Michael Jordan anymore because he owns the team. Um, we're great friends. Um, if he needs advice from me, uh, he'll call and ask. I don't volunteer my advice. Don't tell him how I think he run the team better. He's 57 years old. He's a very bright man. I, you know, what he said on that tape, I want to say to you, you know, people always want to know, what do you want to be known for? And I think most people would, who don't know me would say, you'd want to be known as someone who changed the salary structure in the NBA, invented Air Jordan, whatever, you know, sold your business, made a lot of money. No, what Michael said is the highest compliment to me that I taught him the business because as the son of a teacher, I regard myself as a teacher. And I think that while one of my job responsibilities was to negotiate the player's contract, my principal job was to teach a young Juwan Howard with 20 years old the business of sports so that when he finished playing, he could be a productive member of society. He didn't have to be a coach. He could be a general manager. He could be a salesman. He could be a business executive. And many of my clients made me very proud by what they'd done after they hung up their, their stakers. Well, you know, and, and I hope you get this, David. I mean, this, this conversation has been about you and not Michael, um, no jump man, not anyone else, because with all due respect to them, I mean, you're the legend I'm talking about, you know, it's, it's your tutelage, it's your mentorship, it's your thought leadership that a lot of people are here watching, listening and learning from. So I just want to make sure you get that. I like to tell people I'm a legend in my own mind. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not, I'm not an egotistical person and, I, and I'm, extremely grateful for the brands that enabled me to sell my company also gave me my own reputation that the, the chance to work for Michael Jordan and Patrick, their entire careers in the business I'm in, there's no greater. If I was in the music business, I would have wanted to represent Beyonce or you know, Frank Sinatra in sports. If you're in basketball, having a chance to represent John Thompson, coach K, I have 11 clients in the hall of fame. When I was very young, they made me. They made me who I am. And I felt a challenge to reciprocate the trust they put in me and show them that I was as good at what I did as they were at what they did. And that was a constant challenge to me. To tr- All the things that I did to sort of stretch the envelope in the NBA weren't out of ego, weren't out of greed. It was out of a, a knowledge that that's what they're hiring you for, that I... I want to come back to something you said earlier. So when I was very young, there was a system in sports called slotting. So as we said, if you're a player and you're Juwan Howard and you drafted number five, you would expect to make a little less money than the guy at number four and a little more money than the guy at number six. And after a couple of years of the business, it occurred to me, wow, if all I'm doing is getting the average of what two other people that my client didn't hire did, what the hell do they need me for? They could do it by themselves and just take the two deals, go to the owner and say, I want the average. So I, I wanted to figure out for myself what I thought the value of my client was to the team that picked them based on unique circumstances. So, and maybe one that most mentioned Patrick was the first ever winner of the lottery. Three years before Patrick, we represented James Worley, who was Michael's teammate in North Carolina. He's the only player in the history of the NBA be drafted number one by the team that had just won the championship, the Lakers. Never happened before, never happened since. Now, if you tell me that he is the same value to the Lakers as a guy going number one to a team that won 20 games, 
I'd say you don't understand economics. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the Lakers, and that changes James Worthy's value. And I think to be successful in any business, you have to be able to differentiate your client from the quote, the comps, or, or, or they don't need you. And, and just to slipstream so I can get to some questions before we wrap up, because I can't believe how fast time's flying, and I, I, I promise you I'd get you out to the golf course. No, no I'm good. No, no, no I'm good. You, I, you, I had you for as much time as you can have. Oh, you're a good man. I love you to death. But, but is this, is know your clients. Do the research, right? Do the math, figure it out, lean in, roll your sleeves up, you know, sharpen your pencil, pull out a calculator and really understand your client. Know the market, know what you're doing, know what value you're adding and stand for them. Because one of the things I'm picking up from David is that the way in which his clients trust him is because they know he values them. And it's evidenced and demonstrated by how he stands for them. And that's, that's, I mean, that the history book says, you know, speaks for itself. Wouldn't you agree, David? Yes, but I also think you have to be confident because these players, these clients are stars in their own right, and they can attest you. And I would say the unfortunate part of our business today is most of the agents are being managed by their clients instead of managing the players. And so, like you mentioned, Alonzo. Alonzo, I negotiated the first ever $100 million in professional sports for Zoe, and then I told him to turn it down. Now, Alonzo was a foster child growing up. His parents were drug addicts, and he said, David, look, are you on drugs? Do you want me to turn down $100 million? I'm making $4 million. And I said, Zoe, in my opinion, the market's going to change in the next year, and you'll, you're, you're going to make way more money if you just wait one year. And he said, I can't. I said, well, I'm going to resign. I, I'm not going to put my name on you doing this deal. It's going to cost me $4 million in fees. And that's how strong I feel about it. So he finally agreed. And he went from having a 13-year deal for $113 million to a seven-year deal for 105. So he would have played for free for six years. Now, you have to be very confident yourself to stand up to these guys don't want to do what you tell them to do. And they don't know enough, really. It's not because they're not intelligent. They're not experienced enough in business to make these decisions. So in certain ways, in a very bizarre circumstance, you're both the agent and the client at the same time. You're the agent and the principal because the principal you're working for doesn't know enough to really make a good decision. And you have to really push them. I've had clients, I had a client tell me last year, you're a bully. I said, I'm not a bully. I'm passionate. When I know you're making, this guy wanted to take a deal for four years for 40 million. And I told him, you, you can't play on that deal because I'm going to break your leg. A year later, he signed a four-year deal for 86 million. Now, I said, you're calling me a bully. Would you want to be, be passive or it cost you $46 million? And so I think that's your job. And it's not always fun. You know, it's not the glavery you read in the front page. A lot of times, and some of the people you are arguing with are very, very smart people. John Thompson, who other than my mother is my hero in life, he wanted Patrick to leave school as a junior. I wanted him to stay as a senior. It's a role reversal. Usually the agents are pulling the kids out of school early, and we got into an intense argument, and he's cursing me out like a truck driver, and it's very unnerving. John's 6'10". He's a very bright guy. And finally, the highly arguably says to me, David, you were telling me to keep him in school because you think that's what I wanted to do, but I don't. I want him to lead. It's way too much responsibility on me. What if he gets hurt? What if he doesn't have a good year and he loses a lot of money? And I said, John, it will never happen. A franchise center, it's like beachfront property. The value will never go down. And he went at me for like an hour. And at the end of the hour, I was so frustrated. I said, John, do whatever the hell you want, but I'm going to tell you three things, three things. One, the value will never go down for franchise center. Two, Patrick is not going to get amnesia, forget how to play at 21. And three, you could buy disability insurance to cover the contract. So if I step 10 feet away, I'll show you a plaque. A year later, he had a Patrick senior, gets drafted by the Knicks. He gets the highest deal in the history of basketball. And it, the player the year before who went number one 
got $7 million for five years. Patrick's signing bonus was $5 million. So we signed the contract on September 20th, 1985, and literally signs the contract, and the Knicks come out and give him a check for $5 million. I had never seen a check for $5 million. And so Patrick grabs the check. I said, give me that damn check. And I turn it over. I write for deposit only. He signs it. I put it up. I take the train back to D.C. from New York. It's three hours. I go straight to a photo engraver. I had three bronze copies of the checks made and put on a walled-up plaque. I, I kept one. I gave one to Pat. And I sent one to Big John. When I said, John, I told you so. Love and kisses, David. He put the plaque up, but not the note. And now, if you think that it was fun to get cursed out by John Thompson for an hour, it was unnerving. But I knew at age 33 that if I didn't stand up to him and tell him what I really believed was the right decision, he would never respect me. Yeah. That's, a, that's like a trial by fire you have to go through with almost every major client at some time. Left there with Juan when the team was unfair to him. I this because you know I got to tell the story to your listeners. So Juwan Howard was the fifth pick in the draft in 1994. Very well known player, and his deal. We had represented the player on the same team the year before. Went number six. He went number five. Should have taken ten minutes to make the deal. We offered the team a four-year deal for $24,150,000. Had it been slotted, that would have been within 99.9% of what the slot was. They offered him a three-year deal for $3 million. And we had World War III, lasted all summer. At the end of the deal, we signed him to an 11-year deal for $42 million with the right to get out of the deal after two years. He became an all-star in year two. We got out of the deal, and he became... Now, in between the time that we had World War I and World War II, I called him into my office. I was so angry at the owner in Washington for not taking a vanilla deal and having this unnecessary war. I said to Juwan, I'm going to tell you something. My wife taught me a valuable lesson. I've been married for 46 years. Rod used to say to me when I get frustrated, don't get mad, just get even. And I said to him, I'm going to make you the first $100 million guy in sports to let a polo know you should not treat a person of your character with such disrespect publicly. And Juwan started laughing. He said to me, David, I love your passion, but you must be on crack. There's no one in the world that will ever pay me $100 million. True words. He said that. And True. sure enough, couple, two years later, signed the deal for 105 and and... I was, I was proud of him for believing in me, for staying with me. I didn't want to have to be at a war with Abe Paul. I didn't ask for the war. I didn't declare the war. But I'm not going to back down because he's being short-sighted and unreasonable. And, and so I think it's not so much your ego. It's your confidence. It's being a true believer. And I think in any basis, you've got people all over the world in their own business you're in real estate. If you believe in the value of a piece of land or a building or a transaction and someone is at a completely different place, you shouldn't make a deal with them. If it's not something you really believe in and you're not starving, yeah. I'm a very principled person and I'm a concept person. And if the concept doesn't make, the money comes from the concept. If you have a concept that makes sense, I think that the value of what you're talking about flows from. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Speaking of good people, and uh, we both get it because you all sell services and products. I mean, at the end of the day, what David sings, you got to be a stand. And speaking of being a stand for people, let's go to Nawam, all the way in Israel, Tel Aviv. Good evening to you, my friend. You're live here with David Falk. Say hello and ask your question, brother. Shalom. Hey, good night. Good night, David. Shalom. First of all, I want to thank you on behalf of all the participants. I, I, I'm sure I'm speaking of all of them. Uh, for your time and knowledge for being here with us. I'll to ask Richard's good friend, and I'll be happy to do anything he asked me to do, within, within reason. <laughs> I, I want to ask you something. You're talking about the negotiation uh, of the call. How do you know that you got to the final offer and have to close the deal and not and, and stop negotiating? It's a great question. And 
being Jewish and having been to Israel twice, Israel uh, Israelis are famous for being very aggressive negotiating. So when I was very young, maybe the first 10 years of my career, I thought that when you finish the negotiating process, one side wins and one side loses. And I finally learned, it took me 10 years to learn, that sometimes if you win too much in the short term, you're losing in the long term. So the same year Patrick came out, I had a client named Xavier McGinley, who was the first player in college history to lead the United States in both scoring and rebounding in the same year. And we went into Seattle to do his deal. And um, I wanted to get him $800,000 a year, which was way more than the player of the year before him at number four. And we went back and forth and back and forth. And in one exchange of offers, this was limited, Richard. This was the Wizard of Oz. So I'm dealing with the lawyer for the owner and the general manager of the team, who was a very good friend of mine named Letty Wilkins, who's a great player, a great coach, and a, and a general manager. Very, very good person. But they, they were feeding the numbers to some guy in the back room who was analyzing the numbers and coming up with suggestions. And in one exchange, he made a mistake. The guy in the back room, the Wizard of Oz, made a mistake. And the offer he made had some deferred money in it, had a, a cash value lower than the previous offer. So we're trying to compromise to get closer. And I never get mad when I negotiate. Ever. I'm proud of myself. I was controlling my demeanor. And I said to the lawyer, who's a friend from D.C., I said, look, I'm done. If you guys want to go backwards, you know, we're going to end the meeting. I'm going to fly back to D.C. And you could call me in January and sell the guy. And he said, but what are you talking about? When they realized they'd made a mistake, at that point, we could have gotten whatever we wanted. We could have gotten 800. But Lenny Wilkins, who was the general manager, was also the coach. So my clients can have to work for this guy for the next four years. And, and so we stopped at 762500 We left small amount on the table as a gesture of respect to Lennon. And I told my client, it's the best $37,000 you're ever going to invest because you've got to live with this man and work with him for the next four years. Now, there's no magical guidelines of how, when to stop. It's a smart people's a judgment call. And I think you have to stop before you can embarrass somebody, you can cost them their job. Um, but I think you also have to educate the person you're dealing with what you think the market is, you know, and, and why you think the market is that. And I think oftentimes in negotiations, people substitute their ego, pure raw ego for, eco for economics, and they, they're just trying to win. So this morning, I advised a client of mine who's now in management, okay? So I can't negotiate his deal, but I'm coaching him behind the scenes. And he said, David, you're right, but the owner wants to win. And I said, you tell that owner that you're accepting his numbers. If I were to negotiate this deal, I'd ask for twice as much. He's already won. Now, does he want to rub your nose in it and drag you through the ground? Does he want to negotiate you out of the deal that he thinks he has? Just tell him, stop, enough. Stop grinding me on the side issues. You've won the most. And, and I think it takes intelligence, maturity self-discipline you have to really take your ego out of the game because because it's not a contest it's a process negotiation is a process and the guy you negotiate with has to come away with enough things that justify the deal if you strip him of everything i think you fail that's why that's 100 david thank you so much noam thanks for the question all the way in israel shalom my friend to you and ohad the team out there. Hey, listen, I've got, uh, I've got Vincent here from Edmonton, Alberta. He's coming in to say hello. You've got David Falk live, my friend. Go ahead. Thank you, Richie. It's an honor, Mr. Falk. Uh, you're a legend, it's, and it's a complete honor to talk to you. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm a big deal, young fan, so I've never been out to Alberta, but I'd like to, I'd like to get there. Oh, it's beautiful out here. Awesome. Uh, quick question. Uh, actually, my cousin's sister who was on the call as well, she asked me this yesterday, and, I, and it made me think, how do you deal with the fear of leaving for the unknown? Now, you talked about uh, you're in a big organization and you had to go on your own. How do you deal with that fear? 
it wasn't easy. I'll tell you that. Actually, for the first and only time in my life, I actually had a panic attack on the way to meeting my, my boss for one of our negotiating sessions to buy the business. But I think that, I think it's a matter of principle. You know, like if you, I don't want to be, it's like I was, a, I was in an abusive relation. It wasn't so much about the money. It was just, it was just the way we dealt with each other wasn't appropriate. And I didn't want to threaten him. I, I had all the leverage, but he wasn't smart enough to understand it. And um, as I said, I didn't want to leave, but I couldn't live with myself anymore. I got to the point where I, I, I try to rationalize that, hey, I could handle it because I've got Michael and Patrick and all these guys. And one day I woke up, I just couldn't rationalize anymore. I was scared to death because, because I had a confident amount to compete. I couldn't call up my clients beforehand and say, hey, once you know I'm gone on my own, will you stay with me? I, I could have gotten sued for that. And so I, I didn't talk to any of them. And I expected that there would be a certain number of them that would say, hey, thanks a million, not comfortable going, you're on your road, you're not big enough, you don't have enough resources. I expected to have, you know, a certain loss. And I wasn't happy about that, but it's just something, it's like any divorce. You reach a point and you pass the point of no return you don't know what's going to happen. You, you don't have a crystal ball, but you just can't live the way you're living and, and you have to make a decision. And that's what I did. And I was very lucky because the clients, like when I told them, like no one thought it was a big deal. I called them up and said, hey, I just want you to know I've left ProServe. You know, I've gone on my own. Um, and they said, like, big deal. You know, are you going to retire? So no. And so every single one stayed, which was very gratifying to me personally. Um, I, I think I put in the work and developed the relationship. Um, Richard and I have become really good friends because we're both inherently relationship nuts. Like I value relationships because no matter how smart you are in any business, I don't care if it's science, real estate, sports, manufacturing, when you're trying to make a deal with someone, you're going to come to a point where you're like close, but you're not there and neither side feels they should budge. And at that point, what gets you over the top is goodwill. It's feeling that you can work with the person, you could trust the person. Um, you're not exactly like leaving. You're not a hundred percent comfortable, but you have a good enough feel with the person that that you could that you could make a compromise. If you don't have that feeling of goodwill, you're never going to get there. And and you know what? Just to add something there, and thanks so much for that question, Vincent, all the way in from Edmonton, David. You know what's funny? I'll, I'll get to C Rock here, uh, Mike Sirocco. Um, is David, I noticed that in relationship management, like for example, that thing we're working on, I'm making sure it happens because of my love for you. You know, and I feel it. I, so I, I feel it. Yeah. So like my, like my parents are on standby, you know what I mean? It, like I got, but my point is that when you really truly love your clients, when you love your customers, when you love who you represent or you love what you stand for, you'll make the impossible happen because you, you just got to see it through. And, and David, you're a real champion for that. Here's the last question coming because I want to wind this down. I promise everybody we keep it within the hour, but uh, I know we run long, but C-Rock, I know you're mobile. Uh, come on live. You're here with David Falk, uh, legendary agent of all great things. Go ahead, buddy. What's up, Mr. Falk? Mike C-Rock. Nice to meet you. I love the look. I love the look, man. You look new to commercial. Thank you. Thank you. I followed you with Tiger at a pro-am a couple years ago. Oh, wow. Great to see all day. Nice. How bad I played. You were a little frustrated on a couple holes, but uh, that's all right. <laughs> hey, so uh, you seem to have a little stubbornness in you, like myself, which can be an asset as well as a liability. Can you maybe share with us when your stubbornness got the best of you? A story maybe that uh, where you kind of regret it, maybe? Absolutely. I'll tell you a great story. So in 1986, 1984, I represented my first quarterback in the NFL, Boomer Sison, who's now a broadcaster who's my younger daughter's godfather, super guy. And his roommate, Frank Reich, like this in 1986, Frank Reich holds the record for the best comeback in the history of college football and pro football, came back from four touchdowns to win the game. So he got drafted by Buffalo in the third round. And the general manager of Buffalo came to see me, uh, came to my office, which is a mark of respect, and I wanted to get Frank three years for a total of a million dollars. His opening offer was 900. So right away, I knew we were going to make a deal. 
And his name was Bill Polian. He was a very, very well-respected executive. You know, Bill? Well, well-respected executive in, in the NFL. And we talked back and forth and I took them along. We got up to 950 for three years and he, he wouldn't go any further. So I didn't, I didn't agree to the deal because I was really stubborn and held bent for leather to get a million dollars. So over the next seven weeks, he would call me and try to bridge the last $17,000 here, which is peanuts. And being egotistical, immature, stubborn, headstrong, whatever adjective you want to use. So one day, Bill called me. And in football, those of you around the world, American football, before they draft the players, they spend hundreds of hours watching film of him in college. And if you're a quarterback, they break down how fast you go back in the pocket and angle of your arm. So Pauline calls you one day. He, now, he's really frustrated. He knows he's made a fair offer, and he thinks I'm being a complete butthead, which I, I was. And he said, David, can I ask you a question? How much film, how many hours of film have you watched of your client, Frank Wright? Now, the minute he asked that question, I know he was trying to explain to me that he has a much better sense of how good Franks could be in the pros than I do, and that I'm being ridiculous not to accept this offer. Now, at the time, Buffalo had the number one pick in the draft because they had the worst record in the league. They were 2-14, and 14, and their starting quarterback the year before Frank was drafted had never been drafted. He was a free agent from all schools, Yale University, which is not known for sports. So Bill says, how many hours of film do you watch? I said, none. Why do you ask? And he said, look, we've watched hundreds of hours of your client. We know if he takes a five-step drop in the pocket, it's going to take him 2.1 seconds. If he takes a three-step drop, he basically told me he knows, you know, how he blows his nose. They do everything about the guy. So I said, Bill, that's really interesting. Like, what do you use all that film? Like, what's the purpose of watching all that film? I said, David, come on. Purpose is to, is to extrapolate how frights need to go from college into the pros. I said, really? Is it really that scientific that you can watch all this film and, and make a very objective determination of how good the guys can be in the pros? And he said, of course, Dave. We spend millions of dollars on watching these. And I had him, I really had him going on the film. He was like a reformed smoker. And at the height of his like passion of telling me, you know, how valuable the film is. I said, Bill, can I ask you just one question? And he said, sure. I said, if the shit is not scientific, how come that 30 teams passed over your starting quarterback in the draft for 17 rounds last year? Wow. He hung up the phone. He gave me the money. But in the seven weeks it took me to get my client an extra $17,000, he had to pay me 4%. So I got him an extra, I got him an extra, you know, whatever it was, $50,000 for three years. He ch I charged him 4% of that, 10 grand, so he made 40. After taxes, he probably made about 20. And for 20 grand, in the seven weeks that my dad was in training camp, he lost any chance of competing for the starting job, and he became a career backup. And so I look back, I learned a lot from that. I learned, number one, when a guy like Polian is really trying to be fair, and he gives you a very credible opening offer. He comes right to the doorstep. That 50 grand is what I said to Noam. That's the good. I should have said, Bill, thanks a million for coming. You got a deal and go home. But I was 34 years old. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't mature enough. I have learned to take my ego out of the equation and I screwed up. Hey, listen, David, speaking of screwing up, I mean, we, we have spent a lot of time together. And uh, there's a number of people here saying, gosh, wish David can talk more about branding and business and, and negotiation. And I know that your legacy is all about teaching and paying it forward. Um, can we do this again some other time? Absolutely. Uh, First of all, I, I've had, had a lot of fun. Great questions. I like C-Rock. I love the look, but I could brand you tomorrow. Oh, boy. We, we got ourselves a proposal in the making here. <laughs> Rock. I kind of see a couple of things real quick before I let everyone go. You know, it's very rare that someone can get mentored and it's even rare when they can actually be the mentee. 
but but I've got to say that in my 40s, I've never come to love, appreciate, and respect someone quite like you. Uh, I'm honored to be in your company. I'm honored that you've been able to grace us with your attendance. And, and I know that Pearl would be proud to know that you really embody her lesson, which was to never, ever settle for second best uh, and to always shoot for the stars. And by gosh, you've worked with all of them. Um, so you'd make her proud. Uh, you truly are a champion for her legacy. And, and you've brightened everyone's day knowing that you embody her spirit of both her intellectual capital uh, and her love for all things David. So uh, thank you for that. Well, let, let me respond, if I may. So this is not to you. This is to your audience. When I teach and coach with my partner, Danielle Cantor, who's been with me for 20 years, is the valedictorian of a class of Wharton B School, number one business school in America. One of the things that she emphasizes the most before you say the first word of negotiation is preparation. And I've got to give you kudos for your preparation on me, not Michael Jordan, not Juwan Howard, but the personal stuff, because I am a product of my family. Awful. You know, I think my mom shaped me, mentored me. I'm very, you know, very proud to be her son. Um, what I've done in education is, is to honor my mom as a teacher. You know, I've, I've endowed a college in my name in Syracuse. I've endowed a law school in my name here in Washington. Instead of battling, you know, the deforestation of the rainforest in the Amazon or sickle cell anemia, I've put my resources in education as a way of honoring my mom. So I give you great credit for all the research you've done, the behind-the-scenes research to understand me for who I am, not for the biases. 100%. Well, that's what love does. We, uh, we lean in we listen. And for all the years I've known you, I've always been listening, sir. So uh, it's been a real profound pleasure. And on behalf of everyone worldwide, I want to thank you on their behalf because every corner of the earth has been here. And for the hundreds of thousands that will listen in, David, we are grateful. And we definitely will see you again real soon. I look forward to it, my friend. Thanks for having me on your show. Stay safe, brother. Good to see you. And for everybody, be well, be safe, but more importantly, be successful. Thanks for tuning in to Courageous Conversations with Richard Dolan. We're on all the major podcast platforms, and we appreciate your support by reviewing us. You can follow our show at The Rich World on many social media channels. We hope that listeners like yourself enjoyed this episode, and remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or whatever other streaming services are available, because we cannot wait to bring you more valuable content that can make a difference in your life.